Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review of Books podcast, done in collaboration with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. These violent delights have violent ends, and in their triumph die, like fire and powder, which as they kiss, consume. These violent delights is the debut novel by Chloe Gong. At first glance, the book seems like Romeo and Juliet transplanted to 1920s Shanghai. Two rival families and two main characters, Juliet Tsai and Roma Montagong. But Chloe Gong takes the tropes of Romeo and Juliet and transforms them in ways beyond just the new setting. Juliet and Roma have already had their teenage relationship. An epidemic of madness stalks the population of Shanghai, and there are rumors of a monster in the Huanghu River. These Violent Delights is a thrilling tale of intrigue and investigation, woven with horror and fantasy elements. Chloe Gong is a student of the University of Pennsylvania, studying English and international relations. During her breaks, she's either at home in New Zealand or visiting her many relatives in Shanghai. Chloe has been known to mysteriously appear when Romeo and Juliet is one of Shakespeare's best plays and doesn't deserve its slander and pop culture. It's chanted into a mirror three times. Today, Chloe and I will talk about her book and how the book's elements connect to the setting of 1920s Shanghai. We'll talk about the various ways she works in the tropes of Romeo and Juliet into the story and perhaps some of the unintended parallel to the present day. So, Chloe, perhaps it's best to start with your with the book's two central characters, Juliet Tsai and Roma Montagon. Who are they? What is their relationship? And how did they drive the story? Ooh, wonderful starting question. Um, so, Juliet Tsai and Roma Montagov were originally written to, at the very basic core, represent two sides of a blood feud, because that was the story that I had the initial idea about, and then that was what I ended up wanting to be the very heart of what I was exploring. So... In drawing them up, I had, you know, Juliet, who is very much a stand-in for the modern Asian diaspora. So she is native to Shanghai, but then she was sent away to New York when she was five. Um, and then she came back again as a, like, younger teen for um, a year, which is essentially the flashback scenes of the book. And then she's sent away to New York again, only to return at the book's beginning when she's 18. Um, and Roman Montagov, who is her former lover in that one year, she was back. Um, he is the heir to the White Flowers, who's the rival gang to um, Juliet's family business. Um, and they're Russian immigrants who came down after, well, they came before the Bolshevik Revolution, but they're very closely intertwined to, like, you know, the historical basis between China and Russia at that time. Um but the so he's very much like an immigrant to the city, and yet he knows the city almost better than Juliet does because he spent so much more time there. Um, so, in a way, these two characters are extremely alike because they have the same power as each other, like as you know, heirs of these two halves of a city. Um, but they're also very, very different, just in the ways that. Um, Juliet was raised, you know, away from the city and as an outsider somewhere else, having to grapple with the East and the West. And Roma being raised in the city, but as an immigrant, 
um, and having to deal with, uh, you know, a certain heat, like the the Russian immigrants have the same level of power as the local Chinese people of that time compared to, you know, the um, imperialist West that was also playing a role. Um, so, you know, with the whole these two characters being the driving forces of the story, but they're also in intense conflict with each other. And I think that was what I was most interested in, like when I was, you know, casting up these like two, the two, like the two people who are going to lead, who are going to lead the story. Like how are they going to have to collaborate to drive the story forward? But then what is the drama between them? And how does that like set them aside? How are they in conflict with each other? And what else does it say about, you know, when are they opposed to each other, like in their whole equal blood feud? Because that was what Shakespeare was whole, like his whole thing, right? Like two houses, both like in dignity. And then when are they, um, yeah, so when are they opposed to each other in equal hatred? And when do they have to actually come together and fight against, you know, the colonizing forces that are both, that ha- that are oppressing them both? So, Juliet is a is a recognizable character in literature, right? I mean, she's a she's a a strong woman working to succeed in a normally male dominated space. You know, I compare her to um, to this book's version of Tybalt, uh, Tyler. Um, you know, what were your goals in trying to develop her as a character? I I definitely set out to make sure that she has these like traits that are very easily um like identified as oh like you probably wouldn't expect that like in what you would think to be like 1920s historical fiction i mean i guess i'm historical fantasy anyway um but i i set out to write this as a young adult book right because i wrote it when i was 18 going on 19 and young adult, uh, young adult fiction was mostly what I was reading to begin with. Um, so, and it's, it's really all I've even known because I don't really see myself as an adult yet. So I'm quite unfamiliar with, you know, adult fiction. I'm, I'm growing more familiar with it as I age up. But um, I had grown up reading young adult fiction that was like really popular on the shelves, things like, you know, The Hunger Games, um, Throne of Glass, The Mortal Instruments. And they all had these like, feisty female leads that teenage girls really loved reading because you know like to a certain extent stories are wish fulfillment and you want protagonists that you can feel powerful when you are like going on this journey with them um but even though i really adored these books growing up like none of the protagonists necessarily like either looked like me or lived a life that I could, you know, necessarily relate to because they were all white and I was, you know, an Asian girl growing up in New Zealand. Um, so when I wrote Juliet, I wanted her to be someone that, you know, a lot of Asian diaspora picking up the book could be like, oh, this is really interesting. This book isn't about like being Asian, but she just happens to be Asian and she has these core characteristics that we've usually come to expect from like the Katniss Everdeen's of the book world. Um, so that was kind of like the outward motivation I had going in to have a character who could provide that um, on the shelves. Cause that would have been what I really wanted to read when I was 
a teen reader. Um, but also just in general, I like writing like protagonists that can throw a few knives around. I think it's fun for a story. Right. And, and, and Juliet is a, in, in, in these violent delights is, is a nuanced character. I mean, her, her flaws ultimately, I think, perpetuate some of the core conflicts of the book in addition to her, to her strengths. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Um, but I'd like to, to talk about the other central character, um, Roma Montagov. Uh, so what makes his character different from Juliet? One thing that you mentioned in your, in your answer to my first question, which I hadn't realized until you said it, was you're right that he's an, Im- that, that he's an immigrant or from an immigrant family background, mm-hmm. yet perhaps knows the city of Shanghai better than Juliet because he's been there for more of his life than, than she has. Um, so maybe you could, you could talk a bit more about about Roma's character. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in making the Montagovs Russian immigrants to begin with, it was very um, historically inspired because it's been sort of left out of you know major historical um, what's the word in ma- major historical depictions of Shanghai at this time tends to leave out like how how much was going on at that time um because shanghai was an open port city like basically they didn't need the same sort of um documents that a lot of other places had there were so many different groups and um you know people fleeing different things in their own countries coming into shanghai um so the russian population at that time was like enormous there was there were so many of them um, and there were really interesting power dynamics going on because of, you know, how many groups were there and how, like, the Western Europeans treated them and all of that. So when I was writing Roma, it was – that was the – that was the background that d- – it didn't necessarily affect the story in a plot sense, but it kind of colored the sort of world he came from. Um, so – you know, as the heir to a rival gang that, you know, is trying to rule the city, he's alike to Juliet and that he is trying to hold on to power, but he doesn't actually want the power. Um, and I thought it would be really interesting if Juliet was the more, you know, domineering type, while Roma is the type who, you know, at first glance, he has to be what people expect him to be, but he's actually much softer on the inside, which I thought would be like a really interesting contrast. Um, so he doesn't like violence much, even though he does carry it out because he knows he has to. Um, it's like the differences between, you know, what does family and what does um, responsibility expect you to do? And, you know, what do you actually want ultimately? Um, so, yeah, he he's one of he's one of my um, like. In terms of his characterizations, he's one of my like favorites that I have um, done because there's just there's a lot to it, and I think a lot of it ended up being like small like here and there lines that aren't necessarily like this big bang characterization, but um, there's just a lot about him that's simmering beneath the surface, and I kind of pulled that I think from like original Shakespeare's like Romeo because original Romeo was so like. <sighs> you know, melodramatic with his feelings, like feels a lot, feels like really hard. And I kind of wanted to put that into Roma Montagov, but 
you know, fitted to this new world, like 1920s Shanghai, that the, he has to survive in. So, so let's talk about 1920s Shanghai a bit. I mean, so what may, you, you mentioned also in, earlier in, in, your, in the answer you just gave. So what makes 1920s Shanghai so interesting as a setting? And could you also maybe give, go into a bit more detail about, about the, the history of Shanghai during this time? And what, what's the city like? Um, well, to, to, to begin with, um, I think 1920 Shanghai was, I, I made the decision to sit um, a Romeo and Juliet retelling specifically in that time period in that city. I mean, first, because I'm familiar with it, given that um, like all my relatives are from there. My parents immigrated from there with me like when I was young. So I, I had an idea about like what sort of... Um, what sort of like atmosphere, I guess, was the, like in the city at this time. So when I wanted to write a blood feud story and like, you know, two gangs battling it out and exploring all of like um, Shakespeare's themes about, you know, what, how does hatred like come forward and where does ha- like hatred end up? I thought it'd be really interesting to take this period in time where everything was essentially very lawless because um, the Opium Wars had just happened and Shanghai had been split into different jurisdictions between the imperial powers. So there was the French concession, which, um, you know, France controlled, and there was the international settlement, which um, the British and the Americans and the Japanese all had, like, a section of. Um and while China wasn't technically colonized at this time, um, Shanghai was called like a foreign city, like in its own country, right? So there were so many other imperial powers there um, that law and like legal order wasn't really a thing because it was very hard to actually like control people. Like when this section of the city had like this police force, other section of the city had this other police force, they couldn't like actually control what was going on and it ended up being in true history it ended up being gangsters that was ruling the city so while i do make up the scarlet gang and the white flowers which are the rival gangs in my book um they're very they're very much based on the real life um green gang at the time which controlled like essentially the whole city but they weren't like a tight-knit group like the scarlet gang actually was it was more like a more like a bigger organization um, but because the true history itself already was so interesting and like atmospheric to the um themes that I wanted to address, I thought that it would match up like really nicely. Like, okay, I'll put rival gangs in here, and then I can talk about um, you know, themes of hatred and how it carries out with equal groups in the rival gangs and then how it actually carries out if there's a power dynamic with the British and the French. Um, it was this world that had already sort of come like fully fleshed out of history. And then I thought, you know, this works for this new story that I'm trying to tell as well. And so how much of the of the book really is rooted in, in the history of Shanghai? And I guess in what, in what ways do the characters, the story... Um, even some of the, the 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 fantasy horror elements reflect the sentiments of Shanghai in 1926. 
Um, I mean, of course, there wasn't really a monster in the Huangpu River, but but what does what do those additions to the book? What do they reflect about the sentiments or the feelings of Shanghai in 1926? Mm-hmm. I I tried to root um, most of what I was, I guess, depicting in true history. Um, so yeah, while I made up a lot of the elements, like. The rival gangs were made up, you know, a lot of the people obviously had to be made up, um, and there was no real monster. Um, but in a sense, it, the, the made-up elements were these, to get all English majory, <laughs> the made-up elements were these um, like physical manifest- manifestations of the um, like underlying horrors of the time, I guess. So... Um, you know, without spoiling it too much, um, there, there are like these, there there were these in the book, there are these, you know, colonizing forces and a lot of these worries from the local Chinese and the immigrant groups that are just trying to like integrate into the society about the, you know, what the British and the French are doing, but it's very hard to actually, you know, make that into a visible thread. You can't really see what's happening um, when, you know, imperialism is happening to a society until it's really happened, right? So with things like a monster rampaging the city as, you know, a topic for the characters in the book to talk about, and with things like an infectious madness that causes people to tear out their own throats, they're they were intended as like these physical representations of, oh, so what do these, you know, un- hard to speak about topics and intangible threats, how do they actually like manifest and how does it, how can we dra- like dramatize it and really show, I guess, the harm of what was actively going on through like, I guess in a, you know, metaphorical sense, right? Because, um, colonization isn't really like it's not a passive force like members of that society have to partake in it as well for it to be doing harm so you know the madness was people tearing out their own throats and a lot of links like that um they were very much reflective of you know commentary of what was going on but also what continues to go on in modern day i'd I'd like to go a bit deeper into into the idea of colonialism, imperialism, um, obviously tensions between the Chinese and foreign population in Shanghai is a major driving force of these violent delights. Um, and I guess could you go more to good more to about how, how you integrate these dynamics into your story and and how the Montagovs, you know, who are who are white Russians and you know that's white in terms of their status as emigrants from the Soviet Union, but they are also white. Um, they're foreign, yet also more established than the other non-Chinese populations. Um, I, 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 I guess what what space do they have um, in these in these dynamics? Mm-hmm. It was all of that is very much pulled from true history. I think so. I I would admit I don't tend to go like too deeply into this in the book actually because a lot of it almost felt like, you know, textbook um, recitation to me. Um, I I tried to wind it in more as these things that you could feel like as characters 
talk to each other and like what characters are thinking rather than sort of explicitly stating it because it was you know a lot of these things were hard to kind of see until you know a few years later when historians were making studies of it and really showing like the statistics of you know what was going on with these groups so in history white russians were very much not seen as white people um and i think this has been a it's it's been it's been interesting to see how this book has been received in 21st century America, because I think America is so concerned with just looking at race as this whole, like, as the pinpointed determinant thing instead of um, the more nuanced outlook that 1920s Shanghai had, where it was more about, you know, ethnic divides, power divides, um, and all of that. So... Um, the way that, you know, historians tended to have, like, represented it is that white Russians were not seen as white people by the Europeans who were coming in. They were, like, you know, lowest of the low at the very bottom of the bottom of the ladder, essentially equal in power to the native Chinese, which is why I ended up sitting a blood feud between native Chinese and white Russians in the first place um, because of that historical backing. Um, and then in the way that it kind of gets portrayed in the book is that it didn't feel realistic to me to actually have anyone really say that because it's not something that what would have been like very cleanly like seen right or easily determined until you have that historical retrospect um, it kind of more came through in the way that you can feel like what these characters feel. Like Juliet, when she's interacting with Roma, only has her personal grudges. She only thinks this is the boy that betrayed me and all of that personal kind of things. Whereas Juliet, when she's interacting with Paul, who is, you know, this British, um, I don't even know what word to describe him. He's not really a love interest because she never likes him. <laughs> he, he's, a, he's a British character who is trying to get her attention throughout the book. Um, and when she's interacting with Paul, you can constantly feel this like underlying anger and an underlying sense of um, I, she can feel the power he can hold over her. So that was the way I was, it, it felt more, um, I guess, natural to represent like what was going on between the groups at the time and like how the characters like at the time would feel that. Yeah. Quickly on, on the, on the character, Paul, um, as you're trying to describe his relationship with Juliet, um, definitely every word I was thinking of would probably have involved some use of explicit language, um, <laughs> which, which, which you can use on the show. So, so please feel free. Um, but I, but, but I have one more question about the historical setting. I, I know we've talked a lot about, you know, this, the, the setting of 1920 Shanghai. Um, but I guess one more question on, on the setting, which is these violent delights, it features a few, um, LGBT and, and queer characters mm -hmm. and how much does their experience, um, how much does that reflect, I guess, the reality of, of 1920 Shanghai? Mm-hmm. I, so the, the problem is that when it comes to LGBT and queer history, a lot of it in historical records have been erased. So it is very hard to say um, how much of it is, you know, how much of it has accurately survived and how much we know now 
is true to what was going on at the time because you know like as oppression happens it tends to get um brushed under the rug and erased um so while i can't I wouldn't say that 1920 Shanghai was necessarily more open or accepting than anywhere else, right? I would imagine, you know, as all urban spaces are, as it happens when there are like a lot of people going on, the society is modernizing, there is a certain amount of acceptance. But I think my primary concern when I was writing in um, LGBT representation was that you know, queer people have always existed through history. Like, that's not a question, even if we can't find much of the remnants left anymore. Um, So to me, it was just more important to, you know, have them there because we know for a fact that they would have existed. And we know for a fact that, um, you know, people could live like that and live without sad tragic endings that most media wants to go for so it was um I I guess you could call it like a modern like a modern insertion into it because it's it wasn't so much as me wanting to like take oh what was you know true history saying but more of I think this is something that's important for stories being published in 2020 and that's what I will do and put it into 1920s Shanghai because it's the story that I want to be telling. So I'd like to shift now to talk about Romeo and Juliet, um, the play and some things. But I guess before we before we investigate the, the, the phrase that's included in your bio, um, my first question is, was it was it fun to find new and interesting ways to work in references to the original play? You know, I admit, for example, that I did not connect uh, Roma's friend, Marshall So, to Mercutio until he gives a famous line at the end of the book, at which point I slap my hand on my forehead and go, oh my god, yes, of course. Um, but I guess, was was it fun to kind of find new and, and interesting ways to, 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 to work in these references, these 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 tropes, these themes, in, into your novel? Yes, absolutely. Um, I So I've always really liked Shakespeare to begin with um even in high school like you know even though I groaned with the rest of the class movement to write essays and everything I've always enjoyed the plays and I really enjoy like the way um Shakespeare uses language um so when I wanted to like reimagine Romeo and Juliet one of the most fun parts was to see what I could pull from the story how I could reimagine it And then also just the little Easter eggs that I could drop. So there was like the larger sense of like, am I doing justice to the very heart of what Shakespeare is saying? But then there were like the smaller fun things where I was like, well, where can I put my favorite lines in the play? Like, where can I paraphrase it so that like the other like major super fans will recognize it and scream? And like, where can I make these illusions and what can I, you know, sprinkle here and there to make it feel, you know, Shakespearean, like, on a surface level as well as a, like, deeper core level. So there are a lot of, um, there are some lines where it is almost word for word from the play, but then I change the context of it. There are some lines where the context basically stays the same, like Marshall's last line, not last line, but, like, last line in the, um, in that final chapter. Um and you know all of that it was just it felt very um english major of me (laughs) 
no, it's great. As someone, as someone who, I'm definitely someone who, when I find a reference or Easter egg to a thing, to a work I recognize, I should note, mm-hmm. um, it was definitely like, oh, that's cool. That's a cool, that's, that's a nice thing to see. Um, I, I did want to quickly go into a line that, that's included in your bio, which is, you know, Romeo and Juliet is one of Shakespeare's best plays and doesn't deserve its slander in pop culture. Um, I guess, I guess, could I ask you to, to explain that line a bit? Yes, I love explaining this. I could go on and on. <laughs> um, I So I really love Romeo and Juliet. R- Romeo and Juliet is definitely one of my favorite plays of his. Um, and I think it's just, it's extremely well written. Like on a craft level, it is just, there's so many great, like, fleshy ideas he puts in there there are so many good lines um the end like ideas that he kind of ends with like you know these two extremely young um star-crossed lovers making their like final act of like i guess making their final like sacrifice towards each other this act of violence so that they can choose love instead of choosing, you know, the endless cycle of a blood feud. I think there's just something so interesting about what he was getting at. Um, and when I say like the slander in pop culture, I think that Romeo and Juliet has kind of evolved to this point where Western literature has tried to um, either reimagine it or like, you know, teach it, not teach it, but like teach it poorly honestly if we're gonna be if we're gonna be honest we've rehashed it so many times that people think that they know what the story is about because they've heard the references and they've heard the you know not entirely complete retellings rather than actually going to the source material right because i would bet if you go up to anyone on the street and you're like hey what's romeo and juliet about they'd be like oh yeah the two teenagers who like killed themselves right Blah. and i would bet that a much smaller percentage would say oh but i've actually read the play all the way through oh but i've or like i've actually gone to see a production um so my my gripe about the Romeo and Juliet slander is I think it's become so popular that most people actually understand the like caricature of it and they understand what um, like other media products have falsely or like not they haven't like given it justice when they pull its ideas from it and then repackage it you know for their new audiences. Um, to the point where I think people have kind of lost, you know, the appreciation for what was actually in the play. And I think if people actually go to the play, they would see that there's a reason why Romeo and Juliet has lasted so long and it keeps getting reimagined over and over again because there was something just done so well about this, like, touchstone text of an idea that, like, really came so early about, right? Um... So yeah, that's that's my gripe with Romeo and Juliet. I think more people actually need to go back to the source material than being like, oh, you already know what it's about. I don't need to, I don't need to listen to it again. <laughs> I know everyone. Everyone thinks they know it. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, I'm sure you get this question all the time, um, but uh, I think you're. Well, I know I know you're you're still in college. 
Um, the trope is that aspiring authors quit their job for months or longer to, to write their novel. Um, you, of course, don't quite have that option, I assume. Um, so I guess what was your what was your writing process like? And how were you, I guess, able to, to balance being a, a double major college student with um, writing this book? It was very difficult. <laughs> I won't lie. Um, the good thing was that I I drafted the brunt of it during one of my summer breaks. So I guess that kind of fits, you know, the taking time off thing, even though it wasn't like voluntary time taken off. It was just a natural break in college. Um, but I drafted a lot of it during a summer break. So that was when the first draft kind of came to fruition. Um, but by the time I had, you know, gotten an agent and gotten the book deal, and then I was actually working on the book with my editor, which is really when most of it came to be because I did some really heavy edits with my editor, basically rewrote most of it. Um, that was during my sophomore year when I was taking like a really big course load. So that was really rough. (laughs) Um, but it was, it was a lot of like, really really specific like calendar allocation like it got to the point where I had to start blocking out my day being like okay for three hours I'm gonna write my essay and then for three hours I'm gonna like fix these chapters because otherwise I will not be making deadline and I cannot not make deadline but then it was also like I can't miss these essay deadlines I have to graduate um but yeah a lot of careful like timetabling and then it also became like a matter of like prioritization I guess because you know like in college like there's you know more than just academia going on there's like school clubs um I had a job at the time too um and then you know just friends who want to hang out so a lot of times I have to be like okay I will come hang out for one hour and then I have to leave I have to finish writing this chapter um and then other times it was you know I have to stop doing this extracurricular club it's just not manageable my plate anymore or it's like okay I cannot do like part-time tutoring anymore this is not viable um but you know like to get this book done I had to make a lot of you know um I guess (laughs) sacrifices doesn't feel like the right word because it feels a bit too heavy but like I guess sacrifices that other college students would kind of just naturally be doing to fill their time with because I ended up having, you know, an actual book too on my plate that I had to get done. But um, in the end, I survived and the book came out and everything was happy, even though I lost a lot of sleep. But it's okay. I'm young. I don't need that much sleep. (laughs) Yeah, as someone who also seems to be balancing about eight different things at one time. I can very much sympathize. Um, A a couple more questions. Uh, So the book's core mystery is an epidemic of madness sweeping Shanghai. And you wrote the book, obviously, before all our lives are transformed by the events of 2020. But does the book seem different to you now after after the COVID-19 pandemic? Absolutely. Yeah. I really could not have imagined um, how much more relevant it ended up being. Um, Because most of like, a lot of people think that I ended up inserting things after the pandemic hit. And I was like, no, like, a lot of these lines genuinely were written, like 2019, like, this book had gone to copy edits by, I want to say, like, August of 2019-ish. So way before we even heard about COVID-19, 
just about all of the text was set in stone. Um, so, you know, like there are certain lines in the book where it's like, avoid the madness, get vaccinated. And I'm like, no, guys, I swear I wrote this before the pandemic. Um, but then there are like other certain discussions that um, come up in the book where I think it's a scene where Kathleen is near the bund. Um She's trying to figure out what people have seen, like if these rumors about a monster causing madness is true or not. And she keeps getting waved away by the um, foreign workers in the um, like financial district. Like, you know, these fancy, you know, British expats working as bankers. They're just, they're, they're ignoring her. They're like, we don't believe that there's a monster in the city. Please go away with your savage nonsense. And then there's this section where she's like, they don't believe that the madness is going to hit them because they think their riches are going to protect them. They think this is just something that hits, you know, the savage Chinese people. They won't know what's coming until it happens. And then a few chapters later, it happens. The foreign people start falling sick as well. Um, So that, having written that, it was bizarre. Like when the pandemic, you know, it started in China and then America just wasn't taking it very seriously, right? You know, it was the Chinese disease. It wasn't American exceptionalism was happening. They're like, it's not going to hit us. And then it came and then it hit worse than it had ever hit anywhere else. Um, So the parallels were kind of frightening when it was happening. And I guess, I, I don't know what it ended up saying, really. I guess maybe it's just... I, when I was writing it, I was trying to identify, you know, what is it that people think when they try to see a group of people as lesser than, and what happens when this threat seems like it's something that can't touch them, and then what happens when it does? Like, how do you reconcile that? Um, so when it happened, that like in modern day, it was it was it was frightening. That's all I'll say. <laughs> so. Uh- Last question before we wrap. Um, when we're all allowed to travel again, um, if someone wanted to get a feel for the Shanghai you describe in these violent delights, what should they go see? Ooh, love this question. The first one that comes to mind is um, there are a few scenes in the book that take place in um, Chenghuamiao, which is a place in Shanghai that's still around. And I would say it's one of the only places that probably still feels like it did in the 1920s, like, you know, with a bit more Starbucks stores here and there. But it's the um, it's like the market section that kind of stems off the city temple, I believe. Um, either way, it's, it's a major tourist destination. So anyone who does end up in modern Shanghai will probably care of it. Um, but it is definitely one of the places that would feel like it does in the scene, like where they start appearing in these mountain lights. Um, and also I guess the bond, these are all like probably major, these are major Shanghai tourist destinations anyway, but, um, yeah, like the bond, because they still have like the art deco buildings that were kind of being built in the twenties and the thirties. Um, there's a scene where Roma and Juliet run through Great World, which is this, this like, um, they call it an arcade, but even Juliet remarks it's not really an arcade. It's more like an amusement building. Um, but in the modern day, it's kind of become like this weird art gallery. But either way, it's still like a cool little, um, you know, 
place to visit that would seem quite similar to what's in the book. And yeah, I guess in general, a lot of the um, a lot of the major streets in Shanghai are still in the form of French concession. And you can like see like the gated fences and like the trees that kind of um, tip over the roads in a sense so that they will still have the like the same aesthetic as the um, like French concession scenes in the book. So all of those. So thank you for listening to our interview with Chloe Gong about our debut novel, These Violent Delights. One actual final question so chloe what's what's next for you and where can people find your work what's next for me um next is the sequel to these ones lights will be coming out in fall of 2021 no release date yet but that will probably be coming out soon because these ones lights is a duology um and i'll also be working on like a a few um shakespearean retellings before i leave this little niche i think because i i'm really fascinated about like how i can retranslate a lot of these plays and drop all the easter eggs and amuse myself um i think i'm going to be doing that for a while as for what like people can expect from me um but you can find me on Twitter, Instagram, even TikTok under the same username at the Chloe Gong, or you can check my website out at www.thechloegong.com. You can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at Nick R. I. Gordon. That's N-I-C-K-R-I-G-O-R-D-O-N. You can go to AsianReviewOfBooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow on Facebook or on Twitter at Book Reviews Asia. That's reviews plural. And you can find countless other author interviews at the New Books Network at newbooksnetwork.com. We hope you subscribe and continue listening to the Asian Review of Books podcast, now found on all your favorite podcast apps. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Rate us, recommend us, and share us with your friends if you want to support us continuing to interview those writing in, around, and about Asia. Next week... Join us for an interview with Ed Caesar, author of The Moth and the Mountain, a true story of love, war, and Everest. But before that, Chloe Gong, thank you so much for joining me today. Yay, thank you for having me.